Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. Today's poetical selection is in memory of the teachings of Hazrat Shabastari. May God be pleased with him. We cannot storm the spiritual heights through the might of logic. God's gift of faith is needed to lift us beyond the prison of space and time. This is the essence of grace. Drink the poison that will slay the inner vampire, who prefers the shadows of ignorance to the day-spreading illumination that brings realization to our precarious situation. Reason is feeble and constrained like an eye looking at the sun. We need the intoxication which comes from a cup of remembrance that leaves the ego behind and helps us to ride wings of transcendence to another side of being that is present but invisible to the mind. We are a plurality that arises from the mystery of unity and like drops of spray we are journeying back to the ocean which is our origin and means of dissolution from our lower selves yet we seek defy gravity and remain in the air amidst the many. But the trajectory of each drop is fixed and beyond the reach of created beings to change. Something in the heart resonates with the cry of truth that comes from the ocean, like the plaintive sigh of a mother calling children back to their home, reminding them they are not alone in the world. Yet we busy ourselves dreaming of alluring marvels and lights that delight our sense of who we think we are as we lose track of the night descending around us. The miracle of life will not be discovered through mystical sight, but in the worship of truth, since all else is nothing but pride and misdirected intention. We each have an affinity with one of the many names of divinity from which we come forth and to which we return while singing the praises of our host. All we need to do is take two steps, with the first requiring us to leave the dust of selfhood, and the next we unite with the friend. There are many numbers, but just one counts, and one should see the one and hear the one, and say the one and know the one without other. Discard the sense of separate existence, for there is nothing but illusion and delusion, contained in one sense of being. We spend life outside the tavern of the lovers of God, 
hearing the stories of disappearance drawn by a music that leads to forgetfulness of worldly things. We long to go in and gamble at the table of eternal stakes, where fortune changes in the blink and wink of a mysterious dealer who has fixed the odds in our favor if we'll take a chance. The title of today's short story is Reunion. They had been meeting every year on this date for nearly six years. The occasion marked their way of commemorating the passing on of their former spiritual guide. There were just six who were able to attend this year's gathering. Over the last several years, time, disease, and accidents had removed four people from their annual group festival. No doubt, those four would be observing the event from somewhere in the next world. Setting aside a day to remember someone of relevance to one's spiritual pursuits was not uncommon. Many people celebrated the lives of various saints or observed the day when such and such a spiritual being left this world to live amidst the spiritual gardens of divinity. However, there was something a little different about the nature of this annual reunion. The person whose life was being remembered was a fraud, a spiritual charlatan or a false teacher. The individual who was the focus of these festivities had not died seven years ago, and the reunion had not begun the year following the man's death. In fact, the person had died nearly ten years ago, but it took a while, and this period was longer for some than for others, to work through the toxicity and problems associated with discovering that the individual one once cared so much about and one thought so highly of was, in truth, nothing but a very clever, charming, manipulative, narcissistic sociopath. For a long time, many of the members of this reunion group, including the ones who had since passed away, had been drowning in a turbulent ocean of shock, denial, betrayal, grief, alienation, frustration, and anger. To come to the realization that another human being would be willing to go to such lengths in order to hurt one, devising elaborate ways to fill one's life with calculated misery, this realization would be devastating enough. But then when one factored in how intimate the relation had been, there really were no words to describe how confused, empty, and adrift one felt amidst the storm set in motion by the revelation that the individual was a spiritual fraud. The man had been invited into their homes. He had slept and broke bread in all of their homes. He had been invited into their families. He had been invited into their hearts and souls. Once the reality of what had been going on finally became clear, they each felt, in his or her own way, like an individual from some science fiction movie in which the monster or alien being, once it gains access, slithers about inside one's consciousness feeding from within, laying eggs here and there to hatch later, hatchlings that will eat away at the host from deep within the soul, silently, secretly, painfully, destructively. In the first stages of this invasion, one is unconscious or unaware of what resides within, as if mesmerized by some strange narcotic that dulls the mind in understanding. Later, 
and this is part of the alien's fun, one begins to awake to the horror of what has taken up residence inside of one. Some people come to this stage and become paralyzed. They are like those climbers who are frozen with fear, and as a result they are unable to do anything that might help save themselves. They know what is at stake, and that is why they are afraid, but they cannot bring themselves to either continue up the face of the mountain or to try to work their way back down from whence they came. Other people who have come to realize the presence of spiritual abuse are, for reasons best known to God, somehow able to get their feet moving. Despite their enervated condition, despite being in shock and reeling from confusion, doubt, embarrassment, uncertainty, and betrayal, somehow, by the grace of God, those individuals begin to take the baby steps which are necessary to begin to extricate themselves from the situation. Even for these lucky individuals, the way forward is fraught with difficulty because the poison of spiritual abuse lingers in the system for some time. Furthermore, such individuals must deal with a world that, for the most part, has very little insight into the problem of spiritual abuse, even though many of these same people are victims of spiritual abuse themselves, but are still locked in the stage of unconsciousness when, due to the presence of a mind and mood-altering narcotic, they believe everything is okay and they have not yet realized the horror of their situation. Many of these people wonder how one could be so naive and foolish. They wonder how anyone could be so stupid as to not recognize the presence of spiritual fraud. They suppose everything is like the movies when, as members of the audience, one often enjoys the advantage of having elements of the script shown to one which indicate that, for example, a given character is a con artist and the hero or heroine are unknown to the latter at risk. Or, these people tend to forget that most good movie scripts are framed in ways such that even members of the audience are taken in by the underlying twists and turns of the plot that no one in the audience saw coming. People are fooled all the time. By spouses, children, friends, lovers, neighbors, the media, organizations, government officials, advertisers, educators, lobbyists, corporations, and business people. Events are framed in ways that make things appear other than they are. And like Charlie Brown and Lucy, no matter how many times the latter individual has removed the football just before the former individual tries to kick it, we always seem to be willing to believe that this time the ball really will remain where it is supposed to be. To be sure, there are frauds who are so inept that they are easy to see through. But not all charlatans are made from the same cloth. The former guide of the reunion group was an extraordinary fraud. He was intelligent, charming, insightful, lots of fun to be with, knowledgeable, as well as full of interesting and informative stories. He had the capacity, whether natural or unnatural, to read people, as well as the ability to insinuate himself in precisely those areas where a given individual was most vulnerable, most at risk. He had the knack of faking sincerity and thereby leading a person to believe that he cared about that individual's problems in life. He had the quote-unquote common touch 
That is to say, he could induce people, irrespective of their station in life, to feel that he understood them, that he was one of them, that he was just a regular person who happened to enjoy the great good fortune to have been brought near divinity, as well as having been given the immense responsibility of helping others to struggle towards their Lord. It seemed virtually impossible not to like the man, not to feel warm towards him. He was so attentive, so accommodating. He was not harsh and threatening like so many religious figures seemed to be. He wasn't into condemning people, but rather he was committed, or so he said, to encouraging, supporting, and assisting those in spiritual need in constructive ways. He was the friend one always hoped for. He was like a wonderful grandparent who just stepped out of a Norman Rockwell painting. At a certain point, if anyone had come to the members of the reunion group, prior to their having distanced themselves from the quote-unquote spiritual guide, and had begun hurling charges at their guide, they would have been outraged. They would have wondered if the person making the charges was either seriously mentally competent, or whether perhaps that individual was an agent of the devil, someone who had been sent to wage war with one of God's soldiers. Whenever such tawdry incidents did occur, the teacher handled himself admirably. He said that his heart ached for this sort of poor unfortunate who had become caught up in the web that had been spun by Satan. He said he forgave the person and would pray for that individual and continue to be the person's well-wisher. Gradually, over time and across events, rumors began to circulate about certain improprieties of the quote-unquote guide. At first, the members of what would become the reunion group discounted such rumors as just that, rumors. Sooner or later, all authentic spiritual teachers must go through the unpleasantness of evil-intentioned people trying to throw slime at a good person in the hope that some of what is thrown will stick in some way and thereby create difficulties for the authentic guide. Anything which might induce followers of the teacher to begin to have doubts about the spiritual authenticity of their guide was a useful weapon in the arsenal of those who were up to no good. The members of the future reunion group were, in the beginning, of this opinion. They rallied around the teacher and became more fervently committed than ever before. Eventually, however, things began to happen to the members of the not-yet-formed reunion group. Some of them came to know, without any possibility of error, that the quote-unquote teacher had spread lies about them among other members of the guide's following. Some of these individuals came to be sexually abused by the teacher. Some of them were betrayed in other essential ways. For a time, these individuals were too confused, embarrassed, shocked, and bewildered by what had been transpiring in their lives with respect to the quote-unquote guide to talk about what was going on either with outsiders, who often were derisive of anything having to do with mysticism or spirituality, or with other people who also were followers of the quote-unquote teacher. But a time came when, by the grace of God, these haunted individuals began to do the one thing that the teacher did not anticipate. They began to share information with one another instead of remaining like isolated, wounded, fearful animals. 
At first, there was an unwillingness to trust either themselves or anyone else with such delicate matters. Once a person is betrayed in essential ways, trusting anyone or anything, especially oneself, becomes a very difficult thing to do. It is like going back into the waters in which jars swims and from whose teeth one has just miraculously and inexplicably escaped. These people tend to be filled with a deep sense of existential trepidation, as well as beset with virulent, essential attacks of soul-stopping doubt and uncertainty. Those who begin to discuss, explore, analyze, and reflect on the issues before them started to heal, little by little. But the healing process was quite protracted and subject to many setbacks. There were others who, for whatever reason, were unprepared to talk about what was going on. These individuals did not seem to fare as well in the recovery process. They remained embittered, alienated, resentful, confused, and cast adrift on the perilous waters of existence. They could not go forward, nor did they feel there was anything of value to which they could return. They had become lost in something akin to a spiritual Mariana Trench. Prior to the formation of the reunion group, those individuals who later would become its members went through a protracted debriefing period with one another. They served as compassionate witnesses for each other, people who were willing to listen with empathy to what was being said, and who were willing to extend whatever compassion they could during the debriefing process. They would go over things again and again. They would sift through the debris with great deliberateness and attention to detail. They argued together. They got angry with themselves together. They grieved together. They came to understand together, and they started to heal together. A point in the healing process arrived, however, when by general consensus, they felt it was time to take a break from their group activities and walk about on their own for a while. They each wanted an opportunity to try to reflect on events from their individual perspectives, needs, and circumstances. Several years later, several of these individuals happened to run into one another during a community event. They reminisced and commiserated for a time, and then one of the these individuals broached the idea of getting together for a reunion, maybe as a way to compare notes and check for any problematic residual effects that might be left over from their days with the quote-unquote guide. Phone calls were made, details were worked out, a time and place were arranged for later that summer. When they all assembled together on the occasion of the first reunion, things began a little tentatively. Nonetheless, not much time had to pass before their initial shyness and reservations faded away and the celebration began in earnest. There were many toasts of gratitude that night for having been shown the truth, for having been given the strength of character to break free from the mesmerizing gravitational pull of their former quote-unquote teacher, for having been given one another, for having had the opportunity to heal, for being able to eventually eliminate the toxicity of their former quote-unquote guide from their system, for having been given a way to learn about themselves and life in a way that might only have been possible through the detour provided, for having been allowed to retain their spiritual faith despite what had taken place 
for being able to still be open the possibility, albeit perhaps a little more cautiously than previously might have been the case. For having been shown the way to forgiveness and being able to let the past go, for being able to laugh about life's perplexing aspects and being able to enjoy life's many wonderful opportunities, for having been permitted to love again, for having been helped to triumph over evil. Near the end of the evening, marking their first reunion, one of the participants said, You know, I don't believe there would be anything more upsetting and disturbing to our previous quote-unquote mentor than for him to feel that in spite of his best efforts, he had failed, and that notwithstanding his many attempts to bring misery and devastation into our lives, we have, by the grace of God, sailed through the daunting seas which he set in motion with his inclination towards evil. Moreover, I believe he would be deeply saddened to know that once again, by the grace of God, we are enjoying life rather than feeling like miserable, raw, embittered, angry wretches, which is, I believe, what he would have liked. So I propose that we make this festivity an annual affair. Let us continue to rejoice in the fact that, with God's help, we have survived our close encounter of the worst kind with spiritual abuse. Let us mark our gratitude for all that has been bestowed upon us, the problematic as well as the delightful, with a commemoration each and every year at the same time. The suggestion carried unanimously that night. It was considered to be the very first plank in the group's spiritual bill of rights. During each succeeding celebration, a new plank was added that was acted upon and as a result enriched their lives. The title of today's musical interlude is Places I've Been.
I've just updated my website at www.anab-whitehouse.com. There is a considerable amount of valuable information contained in the material to be found at that virtual location. And, in addition, there are a lot of free downloads available for visitors. For instance, if you are willing to invest 5 to 10 minutes and take a look at the Bridge software page to be found under Menu 1 of the home page and read down through what it is proposing, then you might just discover some hidden treasures that are there for the taking. So please do take the time to make a visit to www.anab-whitehouse.com and you might be pleasantly surprised by what you discover. From high above the stage at Carnegie Hall, the Royal Albert Hall, and all venues in between, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. Today's meditative essay is Courage. The mystical tradition is not an easy path. This is so for many different reasons. First of all, one must consider the forces that will be aligned against one if one decides to undertake the mystical quest. These forces of opposition have a formidable array of weapons at their disposal. One's own ego will be applying constant pressure for one to cease and desist from one's efforts in this direction. The ego will fight a war of constant harassment that is designed to wear the individual down through a steady stream of confusion, doubts, desires, pressures, ridicule, fears, and anxieties. The ego also will fight a rear-guard action intended to resist and ambush every attempt by the individual to gain spiritual strength, commitment, and focus on the path. For example, one may discover, courtesy of one's ego, many seemingly plausible excuses for why one's time and energy should be devoted to non-spiritual activities. Alternatively, one just may feel too tired at the moment to observe the requirements of discipline or duties of the path. Tomorrow, tomorrow, whispers the ego. This chant has a pleasant, mellow, relaxing quality to it. In addition to the campaign of the ego, there will be substantial opposition from the world. The world has great need of, but no use for, sincere mystics or spiritually inclined individuals. The world is a bordello of sensual delights. The world is a playing field in which all sides are vying for power and control, according to a set of rules that would make Australian no-rules football look excessively authoritarian. The world is a cesspool of greed, malice, and selfishness that generates an odor that by comparison would make the stench of manure a welcome change. The world is a gigantic mirror being polished by the mineral oil of self-adoration. The world is a killing field whose executioners are equal opportunity haters of considerable enthusiasm. 
One could go on at great length in the foregoing way. However, enough has been said to give the drift of things vis-a-vis the condition of the worldly perspective. The bottom line is this. The world stands for a state of mind and heart from which qualities such as decency, compassion, integrity, faith, honesty, love, and fairness have been exorcised. As such, the worldly orientation tends to consider the ideas of spirituality or mysticism to be either stupid or obscene or obscenely stupid. Some people of the worldly persuasion are aggressively hostile to spirituality and mysticism. Some people in the worldly camp have impeccable manners and would never dream of being rude to people whom they believe to be fools. Some people who are inclined to the worldly way of things are supremely indifferent to, if not bored by, mystical and spiritual pursuits. Some proponents of the worldly orientation are amused in a slightly contemptuous way by any talk of spirituality or mysticism. Some of the worldly people are just totally mystified why anyone would find mysticism and spirituality of any interest or value, although they are prepared to accept everyone's right to spend time as one chooses. Unfortunately, we are all contaminated to varying degrees by worldly forces. The aforementioned hostility, indifference, amusement, contempt, and perplexity exists within us in a variety of guises. Because we are citizens of the world, our egos have a long-standing exchange program with a spectrum of worldly forces. To swim against the numerous, raging, ugly currents of the world and the ego requires a lot of courage. To fight against the terrorist tactics of the world and the ego cannot be done except with courage. To experience the dark night of the soul created by the dance of the ego and the world takes courage. To face the unknown and not run away demands courage. To be willing to leave what is familiar and comfortable while journeying through the unfamiliar and often uncomfortable terrain of the mystical path presupposes courage. To place trust in one's spiritual guide is an act of courage. To become committed to the mammoth task of reclamation involved in the spiritual reconstruction of one's life is a pure act of courage. As if the world and the ego were not bad enough antagonists with which we have to contend, one also must deal with the demands of the rational mind. This poses an extremely complicated problem since the rational mind is what we usually rely on to evaluate experience and make judgments. Most of us tend to believe rather strongly that if an evaluation or judgment is not rooted in rational analysis, then we are being irrational. To speak of non-rational modalities of understanding appears somewhat of an oxymoron. At least, this is the conclusion of the rational mind. To ask the ears to understand the way of the eyes sounds unreasonable. To expect the nose to have insight into the world of proprioceptors is disorienting to our rational sensibilities. After all, Ears and eyes are different structures entailing different processes and functions. Similarly, 
Olfactory phenomena are quite different from the phenomena dealt with by sensors dealing with the orientation of muscles, tendons, and joints. Nonetheless, the rational mind believes it has the capacity to understand the ways of the heart and spirit. This is so despite the fact that Sufi masters have confirmed and are agreed that the latter phenomena, that is, the ways of the heart and spirit, are entirely different in structure, function, and process from the workings of rationality. Like many other aspects of human existence, the rational dimension is presumptuous in the manner in which it seeks to extend its sphere of influence beyond its limits of effectiveness and appropriateness. When one is taking an intelligence test, if one should try to force large round pegs into small square holes, this is taken as a sign of diminished capacity. How ironic that the rationality which conceived of such a test should insist on forcing the large round pegs of spirituality and mysticism into the small square holes of rationality. The eye cannot see beyond its capabilities. The ear cannot hear beyond its capabilities. The nose cannot smell beyond its capabilities. The mind cannot understand beyond its capabilities. There is, as the rational mind will be quick to point out, a major difference between, on the one hand, the nose, eye, and ear, and on the other hand, the mind. More specifically, in the former case, we have a fairly good idea of what the limitations are in each sensory modality. However, in the case of the mind, we have not yet, for the most part, discovered what the limitations of the mind are in terms of discovery, creativity, and invention. Some rational minds believe the sky, so to speak, is the limit. Effectively, this suggests there is no limit given sufficient time and funding to the rational mind's capacity to penetrate the secrets of the universe. Extrapolating from ignorance does not seem a rational thing to do, since we have no firm idea of what, in essence, rationality is or what makes it possible, we really have no idea of what the parameters of this capacity are. Nevertheless, against reason, the rational mind is adamant it should have the final say in all matters of evaluation, judgment, and understanding. The rational mind will take extreme umbrage with anyone who disagrees with its pronouncement in this regard. The rational mind will inundate and intimidate one with formulae, tables, equations, statistics, mathematical functions, diagrams, experiments, research, debates, symposia, forms, journal articles, and so on, trying to prove that the rational mind is right and every other approach is wrong. The rational mind will cajole, badger, ridicule, boast, and flutter its big blues at one to convince the individual of the errors of his or her ways with respect to issues of non-rational modalities of understanding. Sometimes rational minds, upon reflection, may assert something of the following sort. We accept the possibility there may be different modalities of knowing. Nonetheless, the rational mind will suggest directly or indirectly 
that priority and preference should be given to rationality in the analyzing, evaluating, judging, and understanding of most matters. Sometimes, in order to bolster this claim of priority, the rational mind will remind us of what has been done for the world through rationality. Looking at the world and its history, one might wonder if such quote-unquote proof cannot as easily be used against rationality as it can be used in its defense. To confront the rational mind with all its eloquent oratory is an act of courage. To stand firm in one's search for the reality of the unseen, despite the impressive, dazzling feats of logic, science, philosophy, and mathematics, is to have courage. To be willing to walk, alone if necessary, against the bitter winds of outraged reason, is to show courage. Reason rails against the modes of understanding of the heart and the spirit. The tirade comes not only from without, it comes from within. Have courage, O my heart, for the sake of all that is holy. Have courage. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.